If you're visiting with us this morning, I also want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve on the team of pastors here and uh, have the, the joy of serving as the lead pastor here of New Breed. And so we are so thankful that you are visiting with us. If you're here in your family, it's good to see you. Glad you're back. Excited to worship with you. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. So if you've, when you've uh, arrived there, if you'll stand out of reverence as we read God's Word together. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19 and reading through verse 26. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Read verse 24 again. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we work through this text, continuing on in our series in the book of Galatians, I pray, God, more than anything else, that you would give us grace to celebrate grace. That we would fix our eyes, not on what we have done, not on what we will do, not on what we can do, but we will fix our eyes on the cross and the empty tomb and celebrate what you have already done. And that we would walk in light of that grace. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in the precious name of your son that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing on in our study through the book of Galatians, so if you're visiting with us, you're jumping in after we've spent a few months now looking at the book of Galatians, and we've titled this entire series in the book of Galatians, Getting Back to Grace, Getting Back to to grace. And just an, an announcement, if you've missed any of these and you'd like to catch up on these, Newbury Church has a podcast, and other than last week, because I'm a little behind, all of this series is online, uh, and you can use, you can do it on Spotify or through Apple Podcasts. Uh, I think those are the only two I know for sure are working, but you are welcome to, to catch up on this series. But getting back to grace, that's what we've been talking about as we've looked at the book of Galatians, and the title of this morning's sermon is Celebrating Grace. Celebrating grace. Now we have seen throughout our study of the book of Galatians so far how the churches in Galatia, and remember it's churches, there are multiple churches, the churches in Galatia were tempted to view the law in a way other than what it was intended for. 
The, the great temptation they were facing was to believe that salvation came by keeping the law. Now, we talked about there was a perfect storm of things going on that led them to stray from grace. So, one, they were in the midst of fierce persecution. Life was not easy for the churches in Galatia. They were facing persecution, they were facing hardship, they were facing trials and temptations, and they were asking the question of, is the gospel enough? Is this message of grace? Is the cross of Christ? Is it enough? So they were facing hardship, but not only that, they were battling a real fear of man. They, they were overly concerned, as we've talked about, about what others thought of them, about, about the perception of the world. And so that was another contributing factor to this perfect storm. But the real, the real doozy of the storm, what made it the perfect storm was that while all this was going on, false teaching crept up in the churches. And it came in at the hands of Judaizers, those who, who believed that Gentiles could be made right with God which was, which was a, which was straying from the traditional Jewish tradition. So they believed that Gentiles could be made right with God, but they believed that they could be made right by God by essentially becoming Jews first, by keeping the law. And so they were teaching that, listen, the reason your life is so hard, the reason that you're not seeing God's blessing, the reason that you're not seeing God move is because you haven't kept the Mosaic law. But if you will keep the law, you will experience the salvation that God has for you. And the scary thing was that the churches in Galatia were buying in. They were beginning to believe that they had to keep the law in order to be made right with God. So much so, as we mentioned, that even the grown men of the community of the churches in Galatia were, were considering being circumcised in order to keep the law. Now, that's a pretty big step, but that's how far they'd gone in this belief that, man, if we want to be made right with God, we have to keep the law. And what, what Paul is doing throughout the book of Galatians is he's pushing back on that idea, and he's pushing them to remember that the law is not the pinnacle of God's work. That's very important. The law is not the pinnacle of God's work. And even last week, we saw how Paul reminded the churches that the covenant of promise that resulted in grace is greater than the covenant of law. Amen? The covenant of promise that results in grace is greater than the covenant of law. Now, if you remember back, those of you who have been here, to the very first sermon we preached on the book of Galatians, the introductory sermon, I told you that there were two primary reasons why this book should matter to us. I'm not going to ask you if you remember what they are. It's okay. But I gave you two reasons. And one of the reasons was because I mentioned that just like these churches in Galatia were tempted... Often to stray from grace, we are tempted in different areas and through different means to deviate from the truth of the gospel for something, hear me, that may look a little like the gospel. It may have strands of the gospel in it, but in its entirety, it is not the gospel. And we, living in this day and age, are tempted to stray from grace. We are tempted to stray from grace. And what I want to contend this morning is that there is one particular way that most of us who are in the faith, so I'm talking about those of you who are believers, there is one particular way that most of us will be tempted to stray from grace. Here it is. This is important. Get this. We are tempted most often as Christians to stray from grace when we view the Christian life from a moralistic perspective. Now listen to me. We are tempted to stray from grace 
when we view the Christian life from a moralistic perspective. Let me say it a different way. If you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Here it is. We are straying from grace when we believe that the culmination of the Christian life is to do right things and avoid wrong things. And that this is the primary purpose of being a Christian. And I want to tell you at the front end that that is not what the Christian life is ultimately about. It is not primarily about you doing right things and avoiding wrong things. Now, if you have a church background like I do, this might be particularly difficult for you. Because so much of the, of, of, of the church upbringing that many of us had has told us that in light of being a Christian, now here is what you do. Here is how you live in light of the fact that you have been saved. And I want to tell you there's nothing categorically wrong with pursuing a holy life. I want you to hear me say that. I'll come back to that. There's nothing wrong. In fact, we have to pursue holiness. We have to pursue right living, doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. But what I want to contend with you this morning is that that is not the pinnacle of the Christian life. It can't be. And I'll show you why this morning. But if you have a church background, that's what we've been told. That's what I was told. Not by my parents. They did a great job. I have to say that because they're here. But they did do a great job. But so much of the Bible lessons that I was taught, the stories, the youth group lessons, was about now that you're a Christian, you need to stop lying. You need to stop lusting. You need to start reading your Bible. You, 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 need, to, you need to be a person of integrity. You need to do what is right. And, and, and kind of the culmination of that was, and then God will be pleased with you. There was a book written by Christian Smith. He's a sociologist. He wrote it in 2005. It's a great book. I encourage you to read it. It's really interesting. It's called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And what he did was he followed around a group of teenagers, not in like a weird, creepy, stalkish way, like he, they knew that he was doing this. And he basically observed them as young children in the church heard what they were talking about, and he tracked them through their lives. He tracked them through high school, he tracked them through college, and then out of college, and, and kind of observed the spiritual formation of these young adults. And one of the things that he noted that I think is so fascinating, he said that he, he, he coined a phrase that's been very, very helpful, and he says that what he observed wasn't really Christianity. What it was was therapeutic, moralistic deism. Now, I'm going to break that down. So therapeutic, moralistic deism, meaning that the, for a lot of these people, they viewed the Christian life as first therapeutic. It was about how can you feel good about yourself? How can you, how can you have uh, this sense of self-pride self and, and, and value and, 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 and that Christianity is all about making you feel good? And then he ties in, and it's moralistic, right? So it's based off of doing everything right, avoiding what is wrong, and then it's it, there, there's... A God in there, a deity in there. Not super active, but he's present. They believe in God. And so there were five tenets of this idea of therapeutic, moralistic deism. And they were basically, uh, Christian Smith says, first, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on the earth. We agree. Amen. But the second principle to this kind of worldview he was observing from many who claim to be Christians was God wants people to do good, nice 
or, or be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The third tenet was the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Fourth, he said that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. And he, he started to observe that this was kind of the, the fundamental outlook by many quote-unquote Christians. And what was there at the center of it was this moralistic understanding of Christianity. That what God ultimately wants is for you to do good and avoid bad. And if you can do that, by God, you are living the Christian life. But I want to contend this morning that the Christian life cannot be viewed primarily through a moralistic lens. I would argue that it is dangerous and that it is fundamentally the antithesis of the gospel. So here at the beginning, let me tell you why it is dangerous to view your Christian life as simply, I've got to do everything right and avoid what's bad, and then God will be pleased with me. There are three reasons I want to argue why this is extremely dangerous. Here's the first. <coughs> when we view the Christian life primarily through a moral perspective, we will, here's the first thing, inevitably pull away from Jesus. We will inevitably pull away from Jesus. Because here's the deal, church. When we believe that our status with Christ depends on how well we perform, we will always be lacking. Always be lacking. If we genuinely believe that God's delight in us, that his pleasure in us, and that his love for us depends on our morality, we will, without fail, pull away from Christ because we will never measure up. Now here's why. Because listen, when we can't do something, we will stop trying. When we can't do something, we will stop trying. What if I gave you, I don't know, you all look like a very smart group. There are a couple math equations that people say are impossible equations. And I tell you that if you can solve this math equation up here, this impossible equation, that your life will be blessed, it will be good, you will be happy. You just have to solve this impossible math equation. Some of you might give it a good run. Right? Pull out your slope-intercept form, y equals mx plus b. Give it a good go. But eventually, what will happen? You'll get burnt out. You'll get worn out. A good life doesn't seem all that necessary anymore. Thank you, brother. And you will eventually quit doing what? The problem. You'll quit trying. And you'll pull away from the problem. You'll start to forget about the problem because it's easier to ignore the problem than to try to figure out the problem. Well, that's how it is with us in Jesus. We will never, even as believers, live a high enough moral life to which we deserve the pleasure, the love, and the delight of a holy God. And if we believe that the fundamental point of the Christian life is to live moral lives, we will eventually pull back from Jesus because if we're honest with ourselves, we will never 
really measure up. And let me just say this, church, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing to think that God's love for you, his delight in you, his passion for you depends on how well you do. It stands in complete contrast to scripture. Hebrews 2.11 says that for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. And this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And when we view the life through a moralistic perspective, we will start to believe that Jesus is ashamed of us, that he doesn't love us, that he doesn't want us. And it stands in stark contrast to what he says in Hebrews 2, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Why? Because your standing with God does not depend on how well you perform, even as a believer. But here's the second reason why this is so dangerous. Not only will we pull away from Christ, will we start to view Jesus wrong, but hear me, we will start to view other people through the wrong lens. Now check this out, when we view the Christian life through a moralistic perspective, we will begin to view people through moralistic eyes. Here's what I mean. We will judge the worth of someone, especially as it relates to our willingness to tell them about Jesus based on our perceived moral evaluation of their lives. In other words, are they good enough to hear the gospel? And do we think they are good enough to live the moral life required to be a faithful Christian? And I think if we're honest, so many of us view people through that lens. I'm not going to bother to tell that person about Jesus because when I look at the life they're living, I don't think they'll be able to live the moralistic Christian life that we're supposed to live. Therefore, I'm not going to bother telling them about Jesus. We might not say it like that, but we evaluate people. Right? We'll look at the, the guy under the bridge that's stumbling around drunk and look at his life and say, he's just not in a moral position to where he's ready to hear the gospel because if he hears it and believes it, he won't be able to live this moralistic life, which means God won't be pleased with him, so I'm not going to bother to tell him about Jesus. But that guy over there, that girl over there who looks like they have it all together, I'll tell them about Jesus because they're close enough now that they could get it. And then they could live the good life that they're supposed to live after that. But listen, when we start doing this, we will inevitably ignore those we deem to be morally bankrupt. Here's the problem with that. Based on that logic, Paul himself should have never been saved. Because Paul himself said that he was the chief of sinners. And hear me, church, he had the record to back it up. Because you can look at Acts 22 where he recounts and says, I persecuted this way. I persecuted Christians to their death. Arresting and putting both men and women in jail as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. And I received letters from them to the brothers and I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul himself understands he wasn't just a bad dude. He was actively pursuing Christians to kill them. And he was doing that. Paul was a murderer. The chief of sinners. And God redeemed him. But if we looked at Paul through moralistic eyes, we would look at this dude and say, he's way too far gone. I'm going to keep my distance. I'm not going to tell him about Jesus. Jesus can't do anything with that. 
when we view Christianity primarily through a moral perspective, we will view people through the wrong lens. Here's the third reason that viewing Christianity as a moralistic, as primarily a moralistic pursuit is dangerous. The third reason is because we will become self-centered. We will become self-centered. When the Christian life is primarily about doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong, we will then start to boast in ourselves when we think that we are doing things right. And when we are doing things wrong, we will move heaven and earth and everything around us so that we become the center point, so that we can overcome this trial and this temptation. And everybody's purpose becomes about serving my interest. You tracking with me? And so when we view the Christian life primarily through a moralistic perspective, a moralistic lens, we will inevitably begin to boast in ourselves when we think that we are doing it. And it is dangerous. Viewing the Christian life through a moralistic perspective is dangerous. Now those are three reasons why it's so dangerous, but let me tell you why it is categorically wrong to view the Christian life through a moralistic perspective. Why we cannot see the pinnacle of the Christian life as being moral people. Here it is. Because the cross of Christ is not about making you good. The cross of Christ is about reconciling you to God about being restored to right fellowship with God. The gospel is ultimately about dwelling in Christ and having Christ dwell in us. Now, again, I know this can be so backwards from some, some of the things we've been taught, but the pinnacle of the Christian life is not doing things right and avoiding things that are wrong. The pinnacle of the Christian life is being found in Jesus because of the grace of God that has been extended to us through the work of Christ. And that is the ultimate and supreme end of the Christian life, to walk in such a way that we cherish our union with Christ and then live in light of that union, which will, guess what, produce what? Good works. It will produce good works. Now, I just want to rest here for a moment. Because can we talk about what a freeing thing it is that our standing with God, even as believers, does not depend on how well we do this Christian life, how well we live moral lives. Listen, for me, that is a freeing thing. God knows me. He sees the deepest crevices of my heart. He knows the most sinful thoughts, the most sinful desires, the thing that I want no one in this world to see. And don't sit there and act like you don't have them too. He sees it, he knows it, and he still loves me. And he still pursues me. This is the gospel message. I mean, think about this, that when we rebelled against a holy creator, God, when we basically told God, we don't need you, we don't want you, we can do this thing better without you, rather than God doing what so many of us would have done and pull away from his creation, he presses into them. He presses in through Jesus Christ and steps into our stories and into humanity and says, I will fix that which you have broken. He doesn't pull back, he presses in, praise God. And so even for us as believers, when we falter and when we fail and we just don't measure up to our own moral standards, God still loves you. 
Jesus is still not ashamed to call you brother and sister. What? He's not ashamed of you. I can be ashamed of me. And he doesn't want me to be because he's not ashamed of me because he took all of my shame and all of my guilt and all of my condemnation and he left it in the grave. He is not ashamed of us. Consider what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he talks about the pinnacle of the Christian life. And he says, but everything that was a gain to me I have considered as a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen, because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as rubbish that I may gain what? Not good works. That I may gain Christ. And be found where? In him. Man, that's the pinnacle of the Christian life. That's the beauty of Paul's statement in the chapter before in Galatians 2 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And it's not because good works live in me. It's because Christ lives in me. And Paul finds his hope and the basis for all that he is in the fact that he is in Christ and Christ is in him, not in the fact that he can do good works. The Christian life, church, hear me so clearly, and I promise we'll get to our text. I hadn't even started supporting this idea yet, so bear with me. The Christian life is not primarily about doing right things and avoiding wrong things. The Christian life is about celebrating the grace of God by which we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Praise God. The Christian life is about God's redeeming, drawing, satisfying grace and learning to live in and celebrate that grace. Now, I want to be crystal clear. I hope I made this clear, but I'm going I'm to drive it home again. This does not mean that our sin does not matter. And we're going to talk more about that, especially if, as we move into Galatians chapter 5. So some of y'all are like, well, I'm only here for this week. Well, you missed it. But let me just tell you clearly that it does not mean that your sin does not matter. But what we have to understand is that right living is not the pinnacle of the Christian life. It is a result of the pinnacle of Christian life. The pinnacle of Christian life is delighting and celebrating God's grace in us by which we are in Christ and he is in us. And again, a beautiful thing happens when we do that well. What flows out of us, as Ephesians 2 tells us, is the good works that we were created to live in. The pursuit is not good works. The pursuit is Jesus, and Jesus will produce in us these incredible, righteous works. Now, if we are going to start to change our perspective from one of moralism to celebrating God's grace, we have to come to a better understanding of how the law interacts with grace. And what Paul wants the churches in Galatia to do is not only to get back to grace, but to celebrate that grace as the source and power of their lives in Christ. But he also does not want them to disregard the law. He just wants them to understand the law in its proper context. And so in order to do this, Paul is going to continue arguing what we talked about last week, that grace is above the law. And he does that by helping the churches in Galatians. So what I hope will help us come to a better understanding of how the law and grace work together. How they work together. Because we cannot be confused. The law is not a bad thing. Paul says that in Romans 7. 
Plus, we know that everything God creates is what? Good. God created the law. It is a good thing. So we want to hold the law in its proper perspective. And what I want to help us do is hopefully where we will see the law as valuable, but never elevate it above grace. So there are three things that Paul teaches about the law to help the churches in Galatia, what I believe will help us come to a better perspective of the Christian life. And here's the first thing he talks about, the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. Look again at verses 19 and 20. He says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, who's the seed? Jesus, we talked about that last week, it doesn't say seeds, it says seeds. So until Jesus, to whom the promise was made, would come. The law was put into effect, this is crazy, through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. And so what Paul does is he begins and speaks to what the law does. And he says that the law was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So the law was for lawbreakers. And the law shows us that we don't what? We don't measure up. That's what the law does. It shows us that we don't measure up. Paul says it like this in Romans 7, 7 through 8. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, listen to this. I would not have known sin if it would not have been for the law. For example, Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So what Paul is picking up on is that the law does not make you a lawbreaker. The fact that we have the law does not make us a lawbreaker. But the law shows us that we are lawbreakers. You with me? Think of it like this. When I was younger, I went through this incredible time in my life called puberty. Um, you might have heard of it. Some of you might have gone through it. It's an exceptional time. Exceptional time. Some amazing things started happening. I started to stink. They don't, they don't tell you about that one. Smells started coming from me. I didn't know where they came from. I started to develop these things on my face that like kind of looked like hair, but was just more like peach fuzz. And so, you know, I'm convinced I need the Gillette Mach 5 to get all this off. But something else started happening. These like mountains started growing on my face. They were really gross. Um, if you pushed them, they would pop. And so this is kind of what was happening during this very intriguing time in my life. Some of you have been there. Um, some of you will be heading there. Good luck. Uh, my favorite was the voice cracking. I feel like that happened for about seven years. Um, but my parents during that time, I'll never forget it, it was kind of my mortal enemy. It had this mirror in the bathroom, not the normal one that hangs on the wall. They had this cute round circular one that was on a stand. We broke it, so it was then you just held it. But what this mirror did was it took what was normally in front of me and it blew it up so big. Just monumental. And what, what I would do is I would, I would look in this mirror and I would see what I actually was, what I actually looked like. Now listen, this mirror, mirror, it showed me who I was. It showed me every spot. It showed me every blemish. It showed me every pus-filled mark on my face. 
even though this mirror offered me no solutions to fix it. It showed me all that, but it offered me nothing to fix it. Again, didn't fix the problem, simply showed me what I was. This is what the law does. It doesn't offer you any solutions. It does not fix the problem. It simply shows you who you really are. The purpose of the law is not to save. The purpose of the law is not to earn favor with God. The purpose of the law is to show us how desperately we need a Savior. But Paul adds something else in these verses when he's talking about the purpose of the law. And he says, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Full disclosure, I read that and I was like, this seems like a really weird sentence. So I went back to the original language. And what I learned, thank God that other men who were smarter than me, smarter than me showed it to me, is I'm looking at the Greek saying, I don't understand what this means. And so I looked at some commentaries and they said, no one really knows what this means in the Greek. And I was like, well, that's great. So at least I'm not alone in this. And so they kind of pieced it together. But, but what Paul, what, what, what everyone seems to agree that he's getting at is that he's continuing the argument he made that we saw last week. That the law, or that, that the covenant of promise, this covenant of grace is greater than the covenant of law. And he's doing it by arguing that the covenant of law required a mediator. It required a mediator. So who were these mediators? And I'm going I'm to try to break this down. Well, the mediators of the law were twofold. First, you had angels. Angels mediated the law between man. Now, that is something that the Bible doesn't speak a lot about, but it does mention it. You can look at Acts 7.53, where it talks about angels being mediators of the law. You can look at Hebrews 2.2, 2, where it talks about angels being mediators of the law. But there was another mediator of the law. It was a man. Who was it? Moses. So God did not speak directly to the people of Israel. In fact, he told them, don't come to me. Don't come up this mountain. You won't like how it turns out. But he spoke through Moses. And so God gave the law to Moses and Moses acted as a mediator to go and give the law to the people. Now, why is this significant? Because what Paul is communicating in this verse is that you only need a mediator when multiple parties are involved. And the covenant of law required multiple parties. What I mean by that is Moses and the people were active participants in the covenant. There were stipulations on the covenant. Deuteronomy 5, 32, 33 says, Be careful to do what the Lord has commanded you. You are not to turn aside to the right or the left. Follow the whole instruction the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live, prosper, and have a long life in the land you possess. So based on the covenant of law, track with me, their life, their property, their prosperity, and their inheritance was tied to their ability to do what? Keep the law. Now remember... What does the law do? It shows you that you don't measure up. So if salvation is about keeping the law, if the Christian life is about doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong, we are in a bad way. But we praise God that there was another covenant. There was a greater covenant, one that did not need a mediator. Because remember what Paul said last week, that when God made the covenant of promise with Abraham, there was no mediator. There was one party involved. God. And God swore on his own name because all God needed was God. What's the beautiful picture of that? That this covenant of promise, this covenant of grace does not depend on us. Because who walked through the calves, right? God said, God said, listen, you bring me a calf, you bring me a goat, you bring me a ram, you bring me a turtle dove, and you bring me some pigeons. That's what God wanted. 
Then God has them killed, and he sets them on two different sides. And what, what we read in the Old Testament is that God passed through those things. Abraham did not. And what that meant was that if this covenant is not fulfilled, let what happened to these animals and their death be on me. And so God was saying that the covenant of grace will come about even if it costs me my life. You want to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament? There he is. God didn't need man's help in giving this covenant of grace and a promise. But man was responsible for the covenant of law. So hear me, if life is about moralistic living, you've got to get it perfectly right to gain the inheritance and the blessing and the prosperity that comes with the law. But if you are clinging to grace and celebrating grace and living in grace, your hope is not in what you do. Your hope is in what God has already done. So the law shows us that we don't measure up. It is a mirror that shows us our spots and blemishes and sin that separates us from God. But Paul goes on, and he not only talks about the purpose of the law, but he shows, here's the second point, the guardianship of the law. The guardianship of the law. Look at verses 21 through 24. He says, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. So that was a lot. Let's break it down. Paul wants us to understand that the law is not working against the promise. That's very important. The law is not working against the promise. The law is not against the grace of God. Rather, the law is meant to lead us to the grace of God. The law shows us that we are slaves to sin. It says scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. We know this. We know that apart from Christ, in our sin, we are slaves to sin. Ephesians 2, 1, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You break down Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, and it's telling you that apart from Jesus, you were slave to three things. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to this world. You are a slave to death. You are enslaved in your sin. We are, apart from Christ, slaves to sin, and there's nothing we can do to fix that. But Paul wants to make it explicitly clear that while that is the case, hear me, this is so important. The law does not provide a desire nor a motivation to stop sinning. That's a really big statement, that the law does not provide a desire nor motivation to stop sinning. Paul says, for if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the law does not motivate us to do right. It does not push us to do right. It does not give us a desire to do right. The law just shows us what we are. The law shows us that, that what we need is salvation. But it is faith through grace by which we receive that motivation and that desire. Paul says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. And in verse 24, he says, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. The law is our guard. It is our guardian. Now in Paul's day, a guardian 
which was typically a slave, was someone who was tasked with overseeing the life and the morality of a child. That's what a guardian was. That's what Paul meant when he says it was a guardian. He's thinking of a slave who is tasked with the job of watching the life and the morality of a child. And Paul says the law is the guardian. We are the children. The law watches our life and our morality. Todd Wilson, in his commentary, summarizes all of this like this. He says, the law cannot provide you with a motivation to do what the law calls you to do. It can certainly guide you in doing God's will, but it cannot motivate you to do, what, to do God's will. It can tell you how to change your desires in a way that honors God, but it cannot give you God-honoring desires. So the law teaches us what is right and what is wrong, but it cannot provide you with motivation or desire to be faithful. Let me try to break it down with another human example. So those of you who know me know that I have two daughters, Emery and Thea. They're a handful. So one of the things that Aliyah and I are trying to do, by the grace of God, is raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What that often looks like for us is that we instill rules into our home, rules that we want our children to know. Let me give you an example. One of the things that we say to our child all the time, our children all the time, I said child because it's usually one of them, but to our children all the time is we want you to be obedient. And what that means is we want you to follow our instructions all the way, right away, and with a happy what? Heart. All the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Our girls, when they don't do that, we can say to them, Emery, Thea, you need to listen, and we can pause, and they'll finish it for us. Right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. But I want you to understand, and maybe this is a word to you parents, I am under no understanding or inclination or belief that by me setting rules in my home, it will motivate my child to follow them. No, I'm I'm being for real. I, I genuinely don't believe that by me setting rules, they will want to follow them. Why do I give my child that rule? Because when do I repeat all, right away, all the way with a happy heart? It's normally not when they're doing things right. It's when they're what? Doing things wrong. Because I want them to know that they are in my home at that moment a lawbreaker. I cannot motivate my children to be obedient. I cannot motivate my children to be faithful. I can guard them. I can protect them. I watch over them. Part of the reason we use this example why you listen right away is because if I say stop and you keep running into the street and a car is coming, you're going to die. I'm trying to keep them safe right away. I want them to listen all the way because if I say stop, don't run into the road, it doesn't mean slow down doesn't mean walk a little slower because they'll still walk into the street and get hit by a car and die. Right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Real talk, church, sometimes I'm just trying to get the right away all the way. (laughs) Sometimes I just don't care about the hard. But we should, right? That's the goal. We want them to want to be obedient. But hear me, parents, you setting up all the rules in your house will not make your child an obedient child. At best, it'll make them a Pharisee. What we need is for Jesus to step in and redeem those precious little hearts because it is grace and grace alone that motivates us and gives us a desire to be faithful. You tracking with me? And that's what Paul says the law is. It is our guardian. It doesn't motivate us. It doesn't give us a desire. It simply shows us that we can't measure up. And in some sense, by the grace of God, the common grace of God, it restrains us from going as far as we could go. So Paul shows that the purpose of the law, so I'm sorry, so Paul shows us the purpose of the law and he speaks to 
the, the guardianship of the law. But here is the third thing, the final thing that Paul wants us to grasp in order to, to kind of live this life of celebrating grace and to hold the law and grace in their proper perspective. He wants us to see our freedom from the law. Our freedom from the law. Now, he's going to drive this home later in the book, but he starts even here, the freedom from the law. Look at verses 25 and 26. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to get into this even next week, but that sons is very specific. There are sometimes you can translate sons as sons and daughters. You cannot translate it daughters here. It is sons. All of you, male and female, are seen as sons. Why? Because the son gets the inheritance. The son gets the inheritance. And so what Paul wants us to understand is that what the law could not do, God did through Jesus. We are no longer under the law because of grace through faith. Christ has freed us from the law. Praise God. Romans 8, 1 through 4. A passage I love to quote. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And the defining three words of Romans 8 are found at the very end of verse 1. In Christ Jesus. These truths are true of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we are freed from the curse of the law. We are freed from what the law produces in us. We are freed because of the grace of God, which has brought about life in us. So why do we want to walk in a moralistic life? Thinking that the culmination of the Christian life is to do good and avoid bad, because even as Christians, we can't do it. But we live in the grace of God which has condemned the, the effects of the law and condemned sin and death and left it in a grave. And we are not identified as lawbreakers. We are not identified as law keepers. We are identified as children of God because of the grace of God. All you have to do is read Ephesians 1 and see your identity. It's not about what you do. It's about in him there is forgiveness of sins. In him you have received an inheritance. In him you are adopted. In him you are sealed by the Spirit. It's not about you. The Christian life does not depend on how you live. It depends on us celebrating this grace of God by which we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are not in Christ because we kept the law. We are in Christ because of God's grace to us. We do not remain in Christ because we keep the law. We remain in Christ because of God's grace. God does not delight in you because you keep the law. God delights in you because you are in Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees his beautiful, righteous, precious son. Celebrate the grace of God. Celebrate what he has given you. And we have to start to change our perspective. It is not ultimately about doing right and wrong. Do I want you to do what is right? Yes. Does Jesus want you to do what is right? Yes. Does he want you to avoid what is wrong? Yes. But ultimately, he wants you to cherish the fact that your identity is secure in him. Church, 
We are called to celebrate the grace of God. And so we have to fight to change our perspective. Change our perspective of what the Christian life is all about. The right response, the primary response, the pinnacle of the Christian life is first and foremost to celebrate the grace we have that unites us in Christ. Then and only then will we find the motivation and desire to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us.